Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, Farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today, we are talking with Karam Levy, and he has a story for us, as so many of you do. The idea is to bring in different stories, listen to them, and perhaps they'll match up with what's going on with you, and you may be in a zip code that has uh, cannabis as medicine illegal still. We would guess not for long, but um, when you're talking about different ailments uh, that come with pain... The thing about cannabis, whether it's got psychoactive things happening or not, like with CBD, there is immediate relief. And Karam has an interesting story about how he came to cannabis, and he's going to tell us that. Karam, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about the beginning of it. I know that you had a cancer bout. Did you have cannabis as medicine in your life or cannabis at all in your life before you discovered you had cancer? Only very, very rarely. And uh, I didn't have necessarily great experiences with it. Sometimes I get a little paranoid around people and stuff. Right, right. But I really saw a lot of exposure of people doing hardcore drugs and then using cannabis to take the edge off everything. So I kind of wrapped it all up into a negative thing. You saw cannabis as being lumped with some of the other more dangerous things. And the sales process, mm -hmm. you know, that, that looks extraordinarily seedy oh, from time course. to time. Yeah, back in the day, yeah. right? And yeah. maybe still, and certainly still for sure. people. And so you got a diagnosis of cancer. Tell us about that. Yeah, I got diagnosed with osteosarcoma, osteoblastic of my right maxillary compartment. And uh, it's a lot to say. Yeah, what compart? Where is that compartment? So it's basically like my right gum line. Okay. And uh, a dentist helped me notice that on a job site. I was running a construction company, and you know he's like, "You got to come down Monday." And I'm like, "Ah, I'll come down in a few weeks. I'm working." Mm -hmm. And so when I finally got down there, I went to four or five different doctors. They finally diagnosed it, and they're like, "Dude, this is you're, you're one of 57 cases ever." Wow. With this specific thing, you know, and that was like crazy. And I was like, oh, this has got to be a mistake. That is amazing. I didn't realize it was that rare. That rare. Um, yeah. Genetic or are you a, uh, a skull user? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, uh, I was super straight edge because, you know, there was a lot of chaos in my family. My parents have been married like nine times between the two of them. You know, they work hard, made money, but they were really crazy. And so there was a lot of drug use and a lot of, you know, wildness. You know, my sisters participated in that wildness. They were older than me by a decade. And I was a little kid growing up looking at all of it. And I was like, I don't want that. So I went really straight edge and I was probably too aggressive with my straight edgeness too. I see. So you, unlike everybody else said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stay away from everything. Mm -hmm. Now you find yeah. yourself with this really rare cancer. Sure. And what happens from there? I went through uh, radiation and multiple surgeries uh, at Stanford. I didn't want to do the normal conventional therapy, but there was a lot of pressure from my family and they were showing up, giving me a lot of attention. So I kind of like went through it. It was devastating. The treatment is devastating. And they always tell you, oh, you're going to be a little tired. For no, I was devastated. And uh, super high dose radiation and crazy surgeries to my face. Diagnosis, oh, we're going to take your eye out. We're going to take your forehead off. You know, I was like, if I come out of the surgery, am I going to kill myself? I'm not going to have part of my face. So anyways, I came out, I was okay, so to speak, and I went through all this. And all along the line, there was people kind of bumping into me saying, hey, why don't you smoke some marijuana? And you can put in some cookies, you can eat it. And I was still with that super straight edge kind of like, no, but secretly, right? And I think some listeners agree with this. They secretly know it's going to help. 
but they have this kind of like, I have to be really disciplined and I can't do this. This is not right. And you don't want to do anything that reflects some of those bad feelings of your upbringing. That's right. It would be even a, the smell could trigger feelings like that. That's right. It would trigger feelings right. like that. That's you know? a big deal. Yeah. You know, and that's really unfortunate. The whole just say no, Nancy Reagan, all that kind of stuff. And then when the parents are like super high and they're, they're like, oh, don't you do drugs? I do drugs. And, oh. you know, and then they're giving you all these mixed messages. Eventually, I was like, I just want to stay away from all of it. Right. But when I got diagnosed with cancer the second time, going through chemo, which I hadn't gone through before, was just radiation. It was six months. It was a lot. But going through chemotherapy, I got to the point where I was in bed 24 hours a day. Uh, no energy, no eyebrows, no hair. Just I looked very, you know, just I mean, I looked like a kid, but in an adult form. Mm-hmm. And and then eventually, uh, one of my ex girlfriends who loved me a lot, and you know, I loved her. She came over and she was just like, "You will smoke this. This is called marijuana. You must take this. You're taking this. I'm not leaving your house. You can call the police. I will fucking kill you if you do not smoke this." And I just like looked at her and she was so serious and she's like, "No, this is it." And she had pushed it on me over and over here and there, but she was determined. She showed up just so that I would smoke that. Now, is this in San Francisco at an illegal time or legal time? Illegal. Illegal time. Of course. Got you. Hey, Karam, can I ask you a question about that? What was the reason that people were suggesting that you use cannabis? Was it for nausea, for appetite, for pain? What was, Or was it all of these? Yeah, I would say overall, you know, a lot of people are really great, but they're not super articulate. So they were just kind of like, oh, this is going to make you feel better. They would tell an anecdotal story about someone who would eat a little more or they would have less pain or they would have increased quality of life and stuff like that. I had a filter, right? And the filter was like, you just want me to get high because I've never gone high with you before. Uh-huh. And like, right. I was like, they just, you know, they just want me to start using some shit. And, and, uh, and, and unsure about where it's going to take you. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's really mental. It wasn't going to take me anywhere but feeling better from time to time. But that was the fear. And then you smoked? And then I smoked, and I knew she was right. And, you know, I knew she was right. I finally, like, smoked it. I would just tell you, like, the difference. Mm -hmm. I would go to a movie maybe once every few weeks. I mean, I would lay in bed seven days a week, no energy. It was very hard to get a little energy. Go to a movie, and I I couldn't watch the movie. I would look at the people, and I would feel so detached from my life. I would feel so close to death. And uh, I kept imagining, like, there's, like, a gun up to my head. You know, a lot of cancer patients go through that. It's like you're facing death at every second, especially if you have a really aggressive cancer compared to cancers that are dangerous but less aggressive. And I I just, like, watched people watching the movie. I was so detached. I couldn't enjoy anything. Everything was muted and discomforted. And it was, like, every few breaths I felt a lot of pain, Just, just pressure and suffering. Well, I smoked the marijuana and like in 15, 30 minutes, I was like, all of a sudden there was like color. It was like everything was a little bit yellow and golden, like like a gold, beautiful sunlight color. And, you know, I lived in a bit of a dark apartment. All of a sudden I'm seeing bright colors and lights. I'm feeling happy. I'm saying, let's go see a movie. This movie looks so good. I want to see it. And then, you know, I haven't tried that new restaurant and we should definitely hit that little bit of a hike over there. Like... All of a sudden, my fatigue went away. I didn't even notice it till the end of the night. And I looked back and I said, 
Why was I not fatigued? Because it gives you overall a great mindset. And what happens with our minds a little bit, you know, from what I've noticed through self-study is that if we feel pain, we start to notice pain. It's an accident, but we start to concentrate on our pain. Our pain grows in our imagination and then it grows physically. And then that's what we become focused on. But because I was feeling so wonderful from the medicine, I felt like having fun. So I followed those feelings. I had fun. And at the end of the night, I, I, it's like part of my fatigue evaporated. It was a miracle. That is a really, really wonderful way of describing what's happening to a lot of people because there's this mental step up. And, of course, we are also discussing how the physical things can be remedied by these properties in cannabis. But this notion of, I felt better, my senses came alive, right? The color, and, oh, I want to see a film, and I want to eat this. The educators that we talk to speak just like this, say, this is really what we're talking about, is allowing something, this grayness, to lift off of the person who is having these side effects, these symptoms, and just allow them to live in the now, in a happy moment. Adam, isn't that so true? We hear that so much. Yes. Uh, yeah, we do. And as far I guess, as the senses you know, being lit THC up. That's yeah. brings to the equation and the entourage effect is that you tend to feel better and you tend to have a more positive outlook. And in times like these, even if you're not facing a battle with a terrible disease like Karam is beat down, everybody, I think, <laughs> would like to feel a little bit better in 2017. I think that's true. And maybe, it, maybe it's just the way we see it. Hey, Karam, when you smoked for that very first time when your ex-girlfriend had brought you that, weed. How did you smoke it? I'm just curious. A joint, a pipe, a bong? How did you do it? I think it was a pipe. Okay. I'm just wondering because, you know, there are a lot of people who I'm sure wonder that when they're going to try to smoke it for the first time. It's that thought of, well, how am I going to go about it? What do I think is going to be the, the best way? So I was just curious. Sure. And I can imagine some triggers of people see a joint or a pipe or a glass pipe. They can get triggered off different thoughts or feelings. That's really true. I think some of the paraphernalia freaks people out. They're like, here's the bong. Oh, my God. Whereas if you have a <laughs> joint, it, it resembles a cigarette and the notion of sitting in a circle like, uh, you know, Dick Cavett and somebody. Would you call what happened to you remission? Thank you so much sure, for asking. Sure. Um, what I called it all the time was I'm free, clean and healthy. And that is who I am. And I would like really mentally, anytime someone asked me, I would get really quiet and remember, I'm free, I'm clean, and I'm healthy. Because I wanted a mindset of what if I didn't have cancer, what would my mindset be? So I was attempting to adopt a whole different I am well beyond sickness reality. And, you know, I got better, and it was a really dangerous cancer, so I think it helped. How many years ago was it that you first smoked to try to help yourself? I'm 42. That was, like, roughly when I was, like, 26. So have you continued uh, usage? So that's a really great question. I want to just hit one point briefly. Sure, sure. When I tried marijuana a couple of times before I was sick, I always felt paranoid or discomforted. When I smoked it, when I was actually sick, no paranoia, happiness, comfort, engagement, wanted to interact with people. So I want to say to listeners who may not be as familiar with giving it a try, a lot of the discomfort I felt when I had tried it a couple of times sober, never embraced it. None of that was there when I was actually sick. It was a pure medicine. 
And I had taken Marinol a couple of times because doctors were like, hey, do you want to try Marinol instead of these other pain pills? I'm like, absolutely. And I tried the Marinol. It reduced the pain a lot, but it gave no joy. And the color was still gray. It was still dark. I still felt, you know, and it was expensive. It was 20 bucks a pill. And I had to take two pills because one wouldn't work. I'm like $40. So the marijuana was cheaper. It was fun. Like I, You have to think about that. When you're sick, to go from sick and suffering, you really want to go to fun and happy. Uh, yeah. Anytime. Bring it on. That's way better <laughs> than pain relief. It's like fun and happy. And isn't that probably better for your overall healing if your mindset is better, healthier, more positive, maybe even radiant? I would think that physically healing might come a little easier. Completely, Adam. I completely agree. And all the studies show placebo effect is nothing but helpful when you believe in it or or somehow it's affecting you because the doctors are more confident in your case. Those people heal better than when the doctors are sad, things like that. So when a patient's feeling happy, this is an important thing. Quality of life is great, but success is really great, too. You know, That's a really so good right. point. It's a really good point. And being a good patient is something I remember from the sociology textbooks. There's people who aren't good at being sick and people who are quite good at it, which means I want to be on the team that gets me better, as opposed to someone who's cynical in their fear. And these are sort of broad strokes of how people react. And if you're going to feel uh, some happiness in the midst of fear and uncertainty then you're going to be a better player at your bout. Karam, That's a success formula right there, yeah. Josh. <laughs> um, Karam, how are you feeling these days? I'm feeling pretty good. And, you know, I use marijuana occasionally now uh, for sleeping. It's nice. It's very nice. I also use it for a little bit of physical pain relief if I have inflammation in my body, some sore muscles and stuff like that. And then occasionally I might smoke it for spiritual purposes. You know, my particular style is very judicial. Like I'll smoke it like once a month and then I'll meditate and stretch a little bit. And it really taps me into my body in a whole different way. And for people that are very selective with their usage, they'll find that when they are so selective, they always get a really great experience. It's always like brand new and fresh. And there's a lot of mental, spiritual insights into your body, into your breathing, into your mind, thoughts and feelings. It's beautiful experience. It's really beautiful. I'm so glad you put that language to that because here's another element that hasn't been put quite that well. And that is, depending on who you are and how much you might use this, there are great avenues to your own time in your own mind alone. And um, what Karam is saying is, those that do not use it daily, and there's all different kinds of users, are really in for a treat. If like Thursday's your day, it's going to be a very, very different experience. And the notion of meditating under that tent is something people should really look into. So we never really discuss the fact that daily users have one kind of help. And those that are saying, you know what, this is going to be my time to do it. Maybe it's weekends. Maybe I'm going to take a walk. You're really in for something different. That's right. That's right. And then I've noticed that you end up memorizing some of the knowledge from that time, and it gives you a better meditation when you're sober. It gives you better meta, uh, physical exercise when you're, when you're sober later, which is great. Do you have a medical card, or are you getting it that way, or are you, not, or are you just getting it from people you know? Okay, so I'm going to completely reveal something really you know, straightforward about myself. I can get an eighth. 
and it'll last me six months. Well, good for you. So I, I get high very rarely. Yeah. But I do want to get a medical card because I really want to start using CBDs. I really want to explore the idea of juicing a plant. And I really want to embrace the different subtleties and opportunities that the whole plant provides. I, I eat hemp seed every other day. Um, so I know that's really great. And I have a couple hemp hemp T-shirts, which are great. If they're made well, they last forever. They're beautiful. I can't wait to read Karam Levy's book. This is going to be, he's got a, the spirituality, the uh, pulling back for the cannabis to be more potent. Adam, speak to juicing for a second for Karam, because I know you're a, you're an expert. I would recommend whole plant juicing. And I mean whole plant, bud, stem, leaf, and everything. But you've got to have the right machine to do that. But it is a great way to use the plant. There's nothing, you know, psychoactive in that experience at all. But I've seen a lot of people have great success with it. And I've got to say, when I've done it, I feel better. I find it to be helpful as well. That sounds really exciting. Overall feels better. That's would, a big deal. Would that be like a Norwalk juicer or a champion juicer? What do you think, Adam, product-wise juicer? I can't recall the name of the juicer that I have at home. I don't think it has it on it. I just know what it looks like. It's it's kind of a, a bit of a strange shape. It doesn't look like a, a blender because it's made to, you know, grind the coarseness of cannabis and the fibers. Hmm. So it's not a regular juicer. I wish I had that. Uh, that we'll, handy we'll get it. Well, I can uh, put it in later too. We'll have more with our interview with Karam Levy in a future episode of the Cannabis Corner. Kushnuts, finally a healthy edible without sugar, packed with protein and good fats to keep you energized and lifted all day. Kushnuts are a savory blend of cashews and almonds infused with premium quality cannabis. Each bag is strain specific, so you will know the potency and effect you can expect. Each batch is carefully handmade and lab tested to ensure consistency, quality, and potency. Kushnuts are made by Wish, a California-based not-for-profit collective. We strive to make healthy edibles that are delicious and nutritious with the highest quality ingredients available. Kushnuts, made with love. And now more with our interview with Isaac Roth of Enresco Labs in San Francisco, California. Farmer Adam was asking about lab testing and the importance of labeling. So, Isaac, regarding testing cannabis in labs, when somebody is looking for, you know, a certain ratio of CBD to THC in their cannabis, how do they know that what is on the jar in the dispensary is truly what it is? What is it that the lab does in order to pull that information out of the product? The basic process, I know what we do at our lab, but for labs across the state that are getting ready to become compliant with regulations next year for California, and I'm sure many labs in Colorado and other states do this too, a sample will come in or it'll be sampled by the lab and then that sample will be a representation of, let's say it's a flower, then that whole crop. 
So what's an appropriate representation? It could be 5%. It could be you know 3%. It, it really depends on the type of crop, the size of the crop, where it's grown, and a lot of other conditions. But basically, uh, the lab will get its sample, and then it'll sample prep it. So it'll be homogenized as well as it possibly can be. It'll be mixed with a solvent so that uh, if you're using liquid chromatography machines, then they could read the solvent mixture. And then that sample that's been prepped will go into the actual lab, get injected into the instrument via an auto sampler, and then that chromatography instrument will then pump out a chromatograph that uh, analysts will have to analyze, and then they'll be able to quantify how much of which compounds are present in regards to potency and then in regards to pesticide residues, residual solvents, and microbiology. Well, I guess really the, just residual solvents and pesticides, then they'll just see what is or what is not there. Separate tests then, like the test for the compounds versus testing for pesticides? Is this one test or these different tests? Exactly. They're all different tests. So a potency test will have, you know, sample comes in, gets sample prepped, put into the instrument, instrument does its run pumps out a chromatograph, then the analyst will read that chromatograph and type up a report saying this flower bud has, according to what we found, you know, 15% THC and 5% CBD, and then maybe trace amounts, you know, 2%, 1%, half a percent of like CBG, CBN, CBC, sort of the uh, lesser popularized compounds. And then with residual solvent testing, different process where you're using a different kind of instrument. So is that a, se- a whole separate sample then you'd use one sample for you know testing potency and a separate sample for testing for pesticides microbials etc exactly so i know that what we do and what we'll have to do for next year is we'll take one larger sample that'll then be broken down into separate samples for each test so we'll take maybe you know a five gram sample or a six gram sample of flour and then that'll get broken into four different samples for you know microbiology potency residual solvents and pesticides and so in that sense we'll have a fresh sample for each test because as you can imagine if you take that you know solvent homogenized uh, prepped sample from the potency example I gave earlier and then you use that exact same one for a residual solvents test it's probably not going to work out because for residual solvents you don't use a solvent to mix with the sample so um, yeah exactly they're all very much separate that's interesting so why should a consumer trust the results of labs since we had discussed previously about inconsistencies with different lab results in, in different places. So what what should give the consumer confidence in the results they're seeing? I think that really is a state and lab dependent question, I want to say, because as you have mentioned previously, Colorado's been through the whole legalization gamut and they have, you know, their labs set up that have been regulated and overseen by the state government for some time. Here in California, we're just entering a phase where regulation is going to happen starting next year. So as of right now, and from what I can speak for in California, you kind of have to take lab results with a grain of salt, especially if you see three different results from three different labs. That's simply because that there's no standard methodology. There's no really even playing field standards out there right now because, as you know, there's no real, really, really in-depth research that have allowed solid methods for lab testing to come out because it's a Schedule One drug federally. And so labs kind of have had to come up with their own internal 
internal methods, SOPs, and standards. And because of that, and the use of different instrumentation or having different analysts, you know, there's always human error involved. You end up with different results from what should be the same test. And so from a consumer standpoint, what you really have to do is figure out which lab or labs you think are trustworthy based on what you see on the website, what you may learn from speaking with some representatives from that lab, and what you may have seen with other lab results that they've come out with in the past. And just kind of aggregate all the information you possibly can about a given lab and then compare it to the information you've gathered about other labs and kind of figure out who you trust the most as a lab, at least in this unregulated marketplace right now. And then from there, you can kind of look at it as, okay, well, I trust these two labs or so, but the results are slightly different. Well, then how different are they? Is it a 5% difference in potency? Is it a 15% difference in potency? I can say that given the not so in-depth testing that cannabis kind of demands right now, a lot of people aren't willing to pay, you know, $1,000 for a pharmaceutical grade potency test. Most people want to pay 60, 70 bucks. You're only going to get what we call one shot. So that would be one run of a sample. So you're just going to get one number out the end of that. I know that when we do work for pharmaceutical companies, we'll do everything in triplicate. So we'll do the whole sample prep process from scratch three times, run each of those three times and get nine numbers that we then average into one potency number. So that ends up becoming a way more reliable, accurate result because it's been replicated nine times. So with cannabis right now, everyone's really paying for and getting one result. And because of that, there's an inherent variance of about five to 10% that's just naturally going to be there due to analyst error, instrumentation not being sensitive enough, or you know a variety of other factors like the sample maybe not being the exact same sample that was sent to another lab or the previous sample being slightly different than this one. So as a consumer and even as a producer, if you're getting your products tested, you do have to keep in mind that labs are typically trying to do the best they can. And there is an inherent variance when it comes to potency simply because nobody's paying for more than one shot at a test. And so you kind of should, from a consumer standpoint, take those results with a grain of salt, think, okay, this is probably the roundabout figure. Uh, I'm seeing 15 milligrams of THC in this edible here. So I'm going to assume it's going to be anywhere from, you know, 12 milligrams to 20 milligrams just to be safe. That's kind of how I take it whenever I try new products that I haven't had tested in our lab or I haven't had before. I'll just assume they're either slightly more potent or slightly less potent than claimed on the package. Okay, that's that's good advice. Well, uh, terpenoid, terp profiles are not something required uh, by law. I know it's something that I think consumers would benefit by seeing, and some labs don't only do potency and test for fungicides and pesticides, and they don't test for terpenoid profiles. Why do you think a lab would choose to not do that? Is it a whole different separate machine that's very expensive? Can you uh, speak to that? No, actually. I mean, the way that we do it at our lab is actually the exact same instrument we use for residual solvent testing. So uh, I don't think it would be so much an instrumentation issue as it would be a time constraint in terms of running terpenes, stopping the instrument, switching over, running your standard curve, and then running residual solvents, rinse
rinse and repeat, go back and forth. So my guess is it's probably a cost concern in terms of time and uh, using up an instrument and an analyst's hours in a day. And since residual solvents, as I'm sure are required in Colorado, are required to test by the state's mandates, that they probably are just happy running residual solvents 24-7 rather than taking a break to run something that's considered, quote, you know, unnecessary by the state and running terpenes. At the end of the day, these labs are businesses and they do have to make money. Otherwise, what's the point of being in business? And so I imagine a lot of labs see that as a way to sort of cost cut rather than offering an optional, but I think important service. That's interesting, right? And I think we're going to see that people, customers and consumers are going to be uh, asking for more of these things anyway um, as time progresses. So we may see a lot more testing results. Oh, yeah, certainly with terpenes, um, because the entourage effect is an undeniable truth when it comes to this plant and all of its derivatives. So I honestly think personally that potency in terms of THC, CBD, and a lot of the other cannabinoids and terpenes is probably like the top two or three terpenes in a given strain or given product should be shown on packaging because then you can get a better sense of A, what the product might taste like, what its flavors, what its flavonoids might be, but B, what its overall medicinal or holistic healing benefits might be because, you know, the entourage effect is a real thing. So I'm fully on board with you there, Adam. In the new reel in which uh, Adam sent me something yesterday from Fox News that seemed to suggest that Fox was aware that cannabis could be the key to getting over our opioid issue. When the government is ready for legality on a mass level, what lab might they be headed towards? All these labs that are open around the country, is there somewhere that the government would be tapping into your information? Is there a certain lab that the government is using or are they using multiple I mean, as far as state by state, they are just going to be using third party private labs. But on a federal level, if or when this, you know, does finally go recreational or even medical, uh, I imagine they would use government labs, government funded labs with employees that they hired and put there because they can then trust that whole process, knowing that they set that up. And maybe they'll have third party labs corroborate that data or information. You're not worried about that transfer where the professionals in the industry are allowed to be working with the government, they'll take people from the field. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll tap up third-party labs that have been in the space for a while and say, you know, hey, ex-lab director, we'd love to have you come head up this segment of our government program, in which case I'm sure lots of people would love to jump at that opportunity of, you know, a massive amount of funding to really delve into this stuff. I think as far as the businesses are concerned, I don't think they would be in any threat because on a state-by-state basis, I'm sure the government would still allow each state to sort of figure out and regulate its own market, similarly with what states do with liquor and tobacco. So I'm not too worried about third-party testing, especially in the near term. Maybe 30 years, 40 years from now, the market's so well-regulated and such a well-oiled machine that third-party labs aren't needed. Maybe it's something where spot checks are just something that happen every once in a while. But um, yeah, for the time being, third-party labs are crucial to the development of the industry. And eventually, I think the government will come up with their own internal process. Is there a grading system for your specific lab 
as compared to other labs? And might that play into who gets the governmental job in time? So there's not really a grading system, so to speak. There are certain accreditations and certifications that labs can get. Our lab is ISO 17025 accredited, which is basically an accreditation from the International Standards Organization saying, hey, your lab has proven that it can effectively run these tests and have validated their methods and uh, that you have shown that you're a competent lab to this standard. And that's actually how California is going to be measuring uh, the quality of labs going into next year. All labs that want to operate in the cannabis space as a third-party testing lab have to be totally separate from all other parts of the space. They can't have any relationships with vendors, producers, growers, dispensaries, nothing like that, um, or distributors. And they will all have to be 17025 accredited by ISO. And I'm sure that the government's going to have some sort of auditing program where they audit a lab initially and then maybe visit once or twice or maybe randomly each year. Right. You'd think the future would be relationships between the government and how they're going to get the best product. Thank you so much, Isaac, for fielding that question. And a special thank you to you, our listeners. Farmer Adam and I are so interested in your questions. When we see them, we'd like to talk about about them on the show. Don't forget to write us on our website and to be in touch with us on social. Adam and I will be back next time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cannabis Corner. <laughs>